And um, Taylor, it's good to have you with us this morning, man. Yeah, man. Been excited about it. this week and right. uh, excited to hear Heard you got a new amp for Christmas. Is that right? I did, yeah. What's it called? It's a Vox, yeah. A Vox amp. Vox amp, yeah. Robert gets a new amp. I get a new box of undershirts. So, All right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I'm so glad you're here this morning. And I wanted to, I thought about doing a New Year's resolution type sermon, but then I realized that happens every year this time. So I've avoided going with the New Year's resolution. The reason I asked Stephen to come up here and kind of give you a year in review is because I think we spend a little bit too much time focusing on what's next and what's coming up. And I know many of you have already been thinking for weeks about what your New Year's resolution is going to be. It's been about probably four or five years since I've even attempted to have a New Year's resolution. Uh, there's a couple of reasons for that. The first reason quite frankly, is if I don't set any goals, then I'm really not disappointed if I don't follow through with them. Now, you may say that's a really sorry outlook to have, but it's the truth. So a lot of times I just don't do New Year's resolutions. Uh, That way I don't disappoint myself come mid-January when I haven't followed through with them. Uh, The second thing, and this kind of gets on my nerves about New Year's resolutions, how many of you go to the gym regularly? If you do go to the gym regularly and you kind of have your parking spot that you love, well, come around January, your spot's going to be gone. Because all the new people that have committed to work out over the next year are going to take your spot. And so I've always kind of, that's always kind of bugged me. I feel like seniority should be a really big thing when you go to the gym. If you work out year-round, around the clock, and maybe you worked out 10 or 15 years, those should be the ones that have the front spots. And the ones in the back are the newcomers, the ones that have just decided to start exercising, because they're the ones that need to be walking to the gym anyways. So the parking lot thing really bugs me. And when I go to the gym Wednesday morning, I guarantee you I'll have to park probably across the street because everybody sets that as a New Year's resolution goal. It's not a bad goal to have. I'm not discouraging you from going to the gym, but don't take my spot when you go. And so this morning, though, in all honesty, I wanted to take a look at reflecting. We spend so much time, as I said earlier, looking ahead, plotting out what's coming next. We live in a culture that's media-driven, instant gratification. We're always looking for the next thing. As soon as Christmas Day was over, we've forgotten about it, and we're always looking to 2013. And so this morning, I wanted to take a moment to reflect on what God has done, not only in this church, but in your life personally. And we actually have a pretty good example of this in John 21. If you will, take your Bible and turn with me to John 21. It'll also be on the screens as well. And what we're going to be looking at is basically Peter and the disciples have decided to take a fishing trip and and Jesus, uh, they're not aware that this is Jesus. He tells them to throw their nets on the right side of the boat. They bring in a lot of fish. They end up having breakfast. And we're going to walk through this passage together this morning. But what's interesting about it is, and this is brilliant, what John does in this passage to make us realize that Peter, before he could move on. He needed to take some time to reflect on what he had done in his past. And so as you can see from the slide, the second chance of a lifetime this morning is what we're going to be looking at, predominantly looking at Peter's second chance after his debacle during the uh, arrest and trial of Jesus. So if you will, turn me to John 21, starting in verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathanael of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. 
just as day was breaking. Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Now this is an interesting passage that John provides for us here, mainly because there's very few times in the gospel accounts where we actually see a glimpse of the disciples without Jesus. And what we find in John 21 is the disciples, they know that Jesus has been raised from the dead, but they don't really know what to do. See, most of the gospel accounts provide the arrest, the trial, the crucifixion, and then immediately the resurrection. And there are no glimpses of what was going on in the disciples' lives kind of in this state of flux. And so it's interesting here that John 21 provides us with an account of the disciples and kind of, they didn't know what to do. They were a little bit confused. And this is rare to find this, but John provides us this account. And he does so for a specific purpose. That purpose is to show us that how are we to respond when things we're kind of in a state of flux, when we're kind of without a purpose. And what we find here is that Peter proposes a fishing trip. Now, this shouldn't be uncommon. There's, there's some debate, however, if you read some commentaries on this passage. There's kind of two trains of thought regarding this particular fishing trip. There are some that believe that it was just a normal fishing trip. This is the profession that almost all the disciples regularly were involved in. And so once Jesus uh, was crucified and was resurrected and they didn't know where he was— they just decided to go back to their former profession. That would make perfect sense. After following Jesus, they decided that, I guess our time with him is kind of done, so let's go back to knowing, uh, doing what we know how to do. 
And so that's, that's one side of the debate. The other side of the debate kind of takes it as we shouldn't read anything into this fishing trip. The disciples were hungry. They just wanted some food. And so they went fishing. I tend to believe that the first argument is a little bit sounder here. That they were in a state of flux. They were confused. They didn't know what was going on. And so this trip to them kind of signified them going back to their previous way of life. Jesus is gone They spent a lot of time with him. He raised them. He discipled them. And now he's raised, but they didn't exactly know where he was. He'd only revealed himself a few times. And so they had kind of abandoned their previous life. And in this passage, Peter's saying, you know what? I'm going fishing. As the leader of the group, all the disciples say, all right, we'll go with you. And so back to their normal life. You see, busyness prevents us from being able to reflect on what's happening. It's interesting, as I was home last week with my wife's family over Christmas, how uncomfortable I felt not doing anything. Now, you can identify with this. We live in such a fast-paced world, and when we have those moments where we can just relax and do nothing, how many of you ever feel guilty for doing that? I know I do all the time. I was sitting at home last week just watching football, hanging out with my family, and I felt like there was something else I should have been doing. You see, we do that as a defense mechanism because we don't really want to reflect. We don't really want to think about what's happened in our past. And here, the disciples, they do the exact same thing. They should have stopped, taken a moment, and thought about what would Jesus have us do even though he's not with us. But what do they do instead? They go back to the profession that they already knew. The familiarity of what they were doing prevented them from having that feeling of uneasiness that we often get when we don't know what to do and we're uncomfortable. I was reading a book recently. It's called Grown Up Digital. It's a book that came out probably three or four years ago. He uh, examines the, what he calls the net generations, people that are born around 1983 and above. So I would fall into that. Anybody that's basically in their 20s or 30s, young 30s, fall into this. And he talks about really just the way that our generation multiplied the form of communication and that it's not just enough anymore to have your cell phone out talking on the phone or texting, but while you have your phone out texting, you're also surfing the internet while listening to Pandora or Spotify on your computer and having the television on at the same time. It's not uncommon for me to have four or five different methods of communication going at the same time. I was, as I was getting ready for this sermon, I started thinking about how many methods of communication do I use at the same time? And so I noticed one day I was just watching TV and I, I couldn't just watch TV. I had to have my computer up in case I wanted to look something up about the show that I was watching or the sports team that I was interested in. It's very difficult for us to just focus in on one form of communication. And so the busyness prevents us from reflecting. The disciples here had trouble stopping and taking a breath. They just returned to the life that they had already known. But what we see happens next is they go out to sea and they try to fish and they come up with nothing. And suddenly they see this man out in the distance, and at this point they don't realize that it's Jesus. They say, who who is that man out there? And he says, did you catch any fish? No, sir, we didn't. Well, why don't you throw your net on the right side of the boat? Now, there's a lot of debate about the right side of the boat in classic literature being kind of the more fortunate side of the boat, maybe the side where you have better look. I don't think we can really say from this passage that, that Jesus was thinking that the right side of the boat is the more lucky side. But nevertheless, they threw it on the right side of the boat and they haul in a huge 
amount of fish. And as soon as those fish get hauled in, something clicks in Peter's brain. And he realizes this isn't just any man telling us to throw our nets on the right side of the boat. And so in typical Peter fashion, overzealous, too passionate, he jumps out of the boat a hundred yards from shore. He could have just waited about five more minutes and sailed on in with the disciples, but that's just kind of who Peter was. You know, he was about himself, kind of arrogant, wanted everybody to see him. So he jumps out of the boat and he swims up to Jesus. And I can just imagine the disciples being left, you know, hauling in all the fish on shore. But that's kind of who Peter was. Peter was not the disciple that had a lot of patience, was he? As we look in Scripture, we always find Peter wrestling with kind of too much passion, overzealous, impatient, speaks before he thinks. And this is exactly what he does. He jumps out of the boat, and he swims to Jesus. Last week, during Christmas, I had the opportunity to go see Lincoln. Now, I had heard from a couple of reliable sources. One reliable source told me it's the best movie he'd ever seen. And if you haven't seen Lincoln yet, I would encourage you to go see Lincoln before you go see The Hobbit, okay? This stuff happened. The Hobbit didn't, all right? Don't get me on my soapbox about going to see movies that are made up. I think it's all great. You can learn a lot. But this stuff happened in The Hobbit and Middle Earth. That stuff's not real, okay? There's a lot to be learned about it, but you can learn a lot more from going to see Lincoln. This is an incredible movie. I don't want you to think that it's a biography of his life. That's, that's not what it's about at all. It's predominantly about his battle with the 13th Amendment, trying to overcome the issue of slavery in America. And it was a phenomenal film. I always love movies about presidential figures. And Daniel Day-Lewis did a great job in this film. But what struck me last week as I went to see it was the patience that Lincoln had in dealing with this issue. He says in the movie very early on that he knew from as early as he could remember that slavery was wrong and that it didn't ever deserve to be a part of this country. But the reality is he kind of had to to wait around. It was in the middle of a civil war. He tried to get it pushed through office for a long time. There were people saying that this was a huge mistake. It would cost him his presidency. It would cost him his second election. He gets reelected, and then his second election, and that's kind of what the movie focuses on, is his push to get the 13th Amendment passed. And it was a gut-wrenching movie to see the patience that this man had to endure in order to get something passed that nowadays we would say, how is this even an issue? And so I was struck by the patience that he had, the exact opposite of how Peter was, okay? Peter had no patience, none at all. And in fact, the text tells us that when they get up off of the boat, Peter runs up to him, and Jesus tells him to go get the fish and bring it up on shore. Now, what's interesting about this is, remember how many fish there were, 153. The text tells us that Peter dragged the net full of fish up to Jesus. I could just imagine the disciples, they're unloading all the stuff from the boat. They're getting ready to take the fish in. Peter runs down to the shore, knocks them all out of the way, grabs the fish, and drags it up there by himself. Because that's just, that's just the kind of guy Peter was. He wanted the credit. He wanted the glory. He wanted Jesus to be proud of him. Jesus told him to go get the fish. He didn't want any help doing it. He could do it by himself. And so he grabs the fish, and he brings it on up to shore. And then all of a sudden, Jesus said something to them that's extremely important. He says, I want you to come and have breakfast with me. Now, for those of you that don't eat breakfast, shame on you. Studies show that those of us that eat breakfast are less likely to gain weight, 
We're less likely to double eat at lunch because we've already had our fair share of calories at the breakfast hour. Studies have also shown that children that do not eat breakfast are more likely to be tardy for school and absent from school. And so I thought this morning I would kind of share with you my journey as a breakfast eater. We're going to start with my elementary school years. In elementary school, every morning I would wake up and I would watch the Aladdin cartoon show and eat Pop-Tarts, s'mores Pop-Tarts. There they are. My pride and joy from the age of 8 to about 12. If my mom found out that I was telling y'all that I ate s'mores every morning for breakfast, she'd be real disappointed. But s'mores Pop-Tarts are hands down the best flavor of Pop-Tarts ever made. I would encourage you when you leave today, if you've never had them, to go to the store and get, pick up a pack of s'mores Pop-Tarts. Now, they're going to be sold out because they're so popular, but if you go ahead and put your name on the waiting list when the next shipment arrives, you can be sure to get some. S'mores Pop-Tarts are by far the best. Chocolate fudge is probably second. Cherry is third. The last flavor, the worst flavor of Pop-Tarts, and I'm going to offend some people in this room, but the worst flavor is brown sugar. Those things are disgusting. All right. I know we have some in this room that eat them, and I had to shout out to the brown sugars, but they're just not any good. So go to the store and get some s'mores Pop-Tarts this morning. As I progressed through my childhood into high school, I always had to be at school really early. I played a couple of sports, and we worked out like at six in the morning. And so our cafeteria provided us breakfast in high school, and I would eat two bacon, egg, and cheese biscuits every morning uh, from the cafeteria, my ninth through 12th grade years. Probably wasn't the best thing for my heart, but I did it anyways. And I'll never forget showing up one morning to get my two bacon, egg, and cheese, because I'm real regimented about my meals, if you know me. I don't like to miss my meals. And so I walked down the hall to get my meals, and I noticed that they were out of bacon, egg, and cheese biscuits. And I kind of started a little chant. Bacon, egg, and cheese. Bacon, egg, and cheese. And sure enough, I'm not joking, I turned around, and there were 30 people behind me chanting the exact same thing. We had started a riot for our bacon, egg, and cheese biscuits. I actually got in trouble. It turns out there are security cameras like surrounding the cafeteria and they had spotted me and apparently the crowd behind me chaining for this type of breakfast. And so I got in trouble for that. I did not realize they had surveillance cameras around the cafeteria. So I was real passionate about those. Moving to college, I got on a healthy kick. I switched to oatmeal, orange juice, and a glass of milk. It's like the the American breakfast that you see on TV commercials with the cereal. You know, they always have a glass of milk, glass of orange juice, glass of water, and oatmeal. That's kind of what I ate in college. And then I got burned out on oatmeal, and so I switched to blueberry Eggo waffles, which are excellent. And then right now I'm kind of in a state of uncertainty. I'm eating just a Nutrigrain bar. I don't really know what my next phase of my breakfast life is going to be. But I know it's important to eat breakfast. Now, do I think that Jesus understood the importance of eating breakfast? No, I don't. I just shared that with you because I'm passionate about my breakfast, okay? But what I do know is that Jesus valued the importance of sitting down with his disciples over a meal. Now, what's interesting here, if you go back to John 18, what you'll find is that Jesus has supper, or dinner, whatever you like to call it, the last meal of the day, right before the end of his life, you know, crucifixion life, that is. The last supper, crucifixion, Now, here he is, resurrected from the dead. What is the meal that he chooses to have with his disciples? Breakfast, symbolizing the first meal of the day, symbolizing his new life after he's been raised from the dead. If you look throughout the Gospel of John, you'll find all sorts of interesting little irony, symbolism-type things that John does. And this is one of the ones he does. Supper is the last meal they have together. Breakfast is the first meal they have together 
right after Jesus has been raised from the dead. He invites the disciples up to have breakfast. After all, it is the most important meal of the day. And we're not privy to the details of this conversation. John doesn't provide us with those details. But I can only imagine that it was a time of remorse, embarrassment for many of the disciples who had left Jesus when he was on the cross, left him during the arrest and the trial. It must have been a time of grief for many of them. But I can also imagine where Jesus has this incredible opportunity to explain to them for the first time as he has them all gathered together what his death on the cross really meant. And so this breakfast is crucially important to the disciples really getting what it was that Jesus was doing on the cross. And so they have breakfast. And finally what happens is Jesus pulls Simon Peter aside. He pulls him aside and he makes Peter recognize his vulnerabilities and his weaknesses. You see, Peter comes full circle in this story. He's sitting, warming himself by a charcoal fire, having breakfast with Jesus. And Jesus asks him three times, do you love me? In John 18, Peter was warming himself by fire and three times people came up to him and asked him, do you know Jesus? Now, I don't know who that man is. Aren't you one of Jesus' followers? Never heard of him. Are you sure you don't run around with Jesus and his gang? Nope. Three times, warming himself by fire. Here in John 21, John brings us back, warming himself by fire, standing with Jesus. Jesus asks him, how many times? Three. Peter, do you love me? Yeah, Lord, you know I love you. Peter, are you sure that you love me? Yeah, you know that I love you. Peter, are you really, really sure that you love me? You see, Peter is the disciple that likes to think with his head, excuse me, likes to think with his heart, not his head. This is the man that adamantly denied that he would ever betray Jesus. In John's account, he pulls out his sword and cuts off the ear of the servant of the high priest when Jesus is getting arrested. This is the man that jumps out of the boat and swims 100 yards to find Jesus. This is the man that drags that whole net of fish up by himself without any other help. He thinks with his heart, not his head. And so when Jesus asks him, as he's warming himself by this fire, Peter is forced to reflect on what he previously did in John 18. Jesus was going to make him reflect on denying him three times. And this fire serves as a symbol for Peter to realize Something clicks with Peter, I guarantee it. And he realizes, oh my goodness, I'm in a similar scenario, warming myself by fire, just like I was a few days ago when I denied him three times. And Jesus asks him three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? He knew that Peter had a tendency to provide a flippant answer without really thinking about it. And so before Jesus put him in charge of his church, he was gonna make sure that he was serious about coming back to Jesus. And he asked him three times, you're going to feed my lambs, you're going to tend my sheep, you're going to tend my sheep. And then Jesus finally realizes that, you know what, Peter is remorseful for what he did. This fire episode, warming myself by fire, it was a way for Peter to understand fully the decisions that he made a few chapters before when he betrayed Jesus by the fire. You see, Jesus knew Peter's personality. He knew his weaknesses. 
He knew his vulnerabilities. All of us in this room have weaknesses and vulnerabilities, and what we do with them affects how we're going to help Jesus in this kingdom of God movement. And so what he does is, Peter is reminded, just like that, of the decisions that he had made in a few chapters before. And Jesus says, in spite of the fact that you betrayed me three times, we're sitting here right now, me and you, I have faith in you, I want you to go and build my church. And Peter is put in charge of the Jerusalem church in spite of the fact that he is an arrogant, often boastful, overzealous, too passionate individual that thinks with his heart instead of his head. Jesus takes those weaknesses, transforms them, and uses Peter to build up his church. He says, on this rock, I will build my church. When he says that, he's talking about Peter. And so Jesus can take our weaknesses and our vulnerabilities, just like he did by the fire with Peter, and he can tweak them. You see, a weakness in one area of your life doesn't mean it's a weakness in every area of your life. It's just one area of your life. And God can take those weaknesses, he can tweak them, and he can make them out to be something that he can use only for his kingdom. God was aware of Peter's shortcomings, but he said in spite of that, this is the kind of man, these are the personality traits that I want to build my church. Yes, he's made mistakes, but if he could channel his energy, if he can channel his passion, I believe he can do great things for the church at Jerusalem. And that's exactly what Peter does. You see, Peter was forced by Jesus to reflect on his past. And it was just a few days ago, but how quickly we forget the things of our past. This morning, as we think about the end of 2012, I want you to know that New Year's resolutions are important. I was obviously just joking about having them. They're always good to have. But let's not forget about reflecting on 2012. Maybe God did something incredible in your life. As we heard Stephen read, God did some incredible things in the life of this church in 2012. And I don't want us to forget that. 2013 is coming up tomorrow night at midnight. But until then, let's spend some time in our own lives taking personal inventory, reflecting on how God worked in our lives in 2012. Don't make God throw you by a warm fire to remind you of the past. Take some time over these next couple of days to reflect on the way that God has worked in your life this past year, in your family's life, in our church's life. And then maybe an even more sobering question is if, if you didn't feel God working in your life in 2012, if it was kind of an empty year for you spiritually, I would ask you to find out why. Get on your knees before God. Ask him to show you why 2012 wasn't what you thought it would be. In 2013, we're going to have a ton of opportunities to do ministry in this city, in this church, with those that we love, those we don't know. But I don't ever want us to forget what 2012 has brought us and how God has worked in your life this year. Over the next few days, let's take some time reflecting on how God can use us in 2013 based on the experiences we had in 2012. Will you bow your head with me this morning? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for what you teach us here in this text about how you remind Peter as he sits by the fire that he does have a past that he needs to, to fix.
Lord, we all have a past. We all have moments in our life that we need to spend in reflection, asking you for what we could have done differently or maybe praising you for the way that you worked in our lives, in our church's lives. We had some incredible opportunities of ministry this year and we thank you for it. Lord, help us not to look ahead before we look back. Fill us with your spirit. Give us clarity. Give us passion for this new year. Thank you for your love and for your grace and for your mercy. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.